Hi everyone, welcome back. This week, Emma and I are discussing how to build yourself a birth plan that sets you up for success. As you know, there are many different ways to create a birth plan. Some people love to plan every aspect from beginning of labor through exit of hospital or birthing center. Other people love to wing it. Other people are somewhere in between. So we go through what's important to consider as you are detailing out your birth plan. And as my friend Elizabeth likes to say, when it comes to labor, you're just pulling cards. You can try to stack the deck, but you're gonna deal with the hand that you're dealt. <laughs> and it's incredibly true. So we talk about how to structure your birth plan around having flexibility and where to prioritize listing things out and where to consider maybe having a little more leniency and how to best set yourself up for success so that your birth plan can help you level up and empower you through your labor and get you as much as possible the results that you want. So it's a really good episode. There's a lot to talk about. So I'm just going to let it get started. So enjoy. So birth plans. Have you started making a birth plan yet? No. And it's actually funny because when I was doing some research in preparation for this episode, talking all about birth plans, I was thinking about how we should, we're going through all of the options, of course, of what you should be thinking about when creating a birth plan and potentially creating multiple birth plans. So you don't set yourself up for, you know, potential failure basically, or just disappointment, I guess is a better word here. And I was thinking that there should also be another category for people who don't want to build a birth plan. <laughs> Which is totally fine. Yeah, I'm sure I'll get to the point once I'm in my third trimester where I just want to think about it more and at least have more of a picture in my head of what success is going to be like and what I am hoping to get out of the birthing experience if there are things that are really important to me which is a birth plan in itself, of course. But I mean, at least at this point where I am, the less that I'm planning, the better that I feel. I just, for some reason, it doesn't feel like something that I don't have strong opinions at this point. I kind of wanted to just go with the flow and I, I just don't have strong opinions for my planet yet. Well, and <laughs> at that's what okay. point do you start building yours? Um, with Harper, uh, I mean, <laughs> like right away. <laughs> um, but with this one, I still don't have a solid birth plan. I've had conversations with my midwife about things that I do and don't want to do. Um, but I do not have like a printed out piece of paper that I will have in my bag that in the event that we go to the hospital, I can hand to the care team. Like I'm not going that route this time because I was so locked on my birth plan the first time and... Um, I learned, I don't want to say the hard way, but I learned as many women do with their first birth that like you can over plan, um, but it's not like you, it's just so much is out of your control that if you are a person like me who then focuses on that one specific plan, it's going to set you up for disappointment. If you have the ability going in to create a birth plan and at the same time be like, oh yeah, but like, you know, we'll just see, we'll just go with the flow, then more power to you because you're going to be way better off in the end. But Right. It's a control thing though, I think in a lot of ways for, sure. and for so many people who need to have control or are 
more type A planners, then it makes sense to do that and to, like you said, put together a whole document. Or I'm sure there are people, I, I can think of a few people in my life who probably have had made spreadsheets with every yep. possible scenario yep. and had that prepared to give to their care team. And kudos to them for being super organized and knowing what they want in life. I, in some parts of my life, I'm very much like that. With work, I'm like that. With personal stuff, I'm kind of just like, okay, whatever's going to be easiest for me and for everyone else, let's just let's just see what happens in the moment. Yeah, which <laughs> is totally to fine flexible. too. You do have to be flexible. And I think that, you know, this episode, we're going to sort of outline all of the things that you could take into consideration when making a birth plan. But like for you, for example, maybe your birth plan is strictly just the after delivery care. Maybe those Mm -hmm. are the only things that you plan out because those are things that obviously are going to be important, like what vaccines you are or are not going to do, how you're going to handle immediate post delivery. Are you going to, are you going to request skin to skin time? Are you going to request delayed cord clamping? Those are all things that you want to at least have an understanding of so that you know what hospital procedure, what's typical for hospital procedure versus what's best for you or best for baby. And you can, you can make different requests based on that. Obviously things like circumcision or things that you need to have planned ahead of time. Um, But aside from that, like the whole idea of painting your perfect labor, it's definitely, I think that's one part of the birth plan where like, feel free to leave that out, you know, because that's the one thing that's the most unpredictable. (laughs) Right. Because there are so many facets of the birth plan there. It's not just the laboring plan, but the delivery, if there's an emergency situation, what's going to happen, what happens post-delivery with, like you said, with skin to skin and circumcision and all of those different decisions to be made. And then also the plan for with the baby, you know, for the first few days of life, there is so much complexity and so much to think about besides for just the actual delivering plan, delivery plan. Yeah, exactly. So I think we will go through like all of the things that you should be taking into consideration. But just because we talk about them all doesn't mean you have to make them all part of your birth plan because Mm -hmm. you know yourself better than anyone else does. And over planning may come back to bite you in the ass (laughs) like it did with me with my first delivery. So (laughs) um, I guess really it's just a matter of of all of these things being taken into consideration and being thought about even if you don't actually ever put them on paper and at, and at least the important like the medical attention pieces being discussed so that you're not in the moment god forbid you get into an emergency situation and you haven't taken into consideration all of the options and you suddenly are super overwhelmed by emotions and chaos and you don't know what to do yeah and i would also imagine that at some point probably as you get closer to your due date, this would be a conversation that you would be having with your care team to talk about and go over lots of different options. I'm actually, I'm going to ask my OB the next time that I see her, what her protocol is with birthing plans. Like, does she initiate the conversation at some point with all of her patients? Does she have sort of like a form or a checklist for people to go through to figure out what they want and what they don't want? I'm really curious to know what their policy is on that. Yeah, that's a really good point. That's a good thing to find out about because I'm sure it's different based on location. Um, my and provider, like you're working and with pro- a midwife yeah. and you're probably working in, it's a more, it's a different kind of personal relationship than you would have typically with an OB. So I would imagine that the lines of communication are open in a different way. 
Right. And for example, in my situation, I've discussed all of the things that are priorities in my birth plan with my midwife, but we've also discussed, you know, the backup plan. If we are in a hospital transfer situation, she knows all of the things that I do and don't want. And mm-hmm. she's going to be there to advocate for me because she's essentially, if we go into the hospital, if we're in an emergency, she essentially goes in as my doula then instead of my midwife. Mm-hmm. So she still already has all the information. But if I weren't doing it that way, if I were just going into the hospital where I was about to go into a medical team that I'd never been exposed to before, obviously I would feel very differently about wanting to make sure that I had my plan printed out on paper where I could just hand it to someone because you haven't had the opportunity to have all those conversations beforehand. Mm-hmm. Um, and I usually recommend, and this is not this does not apply to everyone, but I usually recommend people making two birth plans. One for like your ideal, dreamiest, most perfect Mm -hmm. birth plan scenario. And then also planning out like worst case slash emergency scenario. Um, Just so that you can wrap your brain around the potential for what could happen. And make sure that you have as much of a plan there as possible. So that you're not completely blindsided if you get into that situation Mm -hmm. in real time. But that also doesn't work for everyone. For some people, that gives them more anxiety than anything else. And that's also not something that we want to create at any point in in pregnancy. So, um, you know, you have to to feel out what's right for you as far as creating your birth plan and what you decide to prioritize planning and what you decide to leave alone. Yeah. And then also sharing that with your partner or whoever's going to be in the room with you to make sure that they know what's important to you so that they can be an advocate. Yeah. Definitely. So before we dive into it, I just want to go over like some basic do's and don'ts to sort of help you guide yourself in the right direction. You want to make sure that you have an ideal vision, but you also want to be flexible with it, um, which we talk about a lot, right? But so much, so many variables in pregnancy, so much is unpredictable. Knowing what you want, but also not having a stronghold on it. Um, Definitely in your birth plan, give yourself options. That is mostly going to apply towards your laboring phase and your getting the baby out phase. You will probably not need to give yourself as many options for post-delivery care and baby care, but still things to take into consideration. You also want to, as much as you can in structuring your birth plan, allow for some in-the-moment decision-making. Because, again, there are going to be things that happen that are out of your control. So allowing some flexibility there. And then also, as you're making your birth plan, make sure that you are, as much as you can, anticipating and expecting the unexpected. And knowing that whatever you plan, you can't force to happen. So giving yourself a little bit of wiggle room, a little bit of grace to know that your plan is still kind of just a pipe dream Mm -hmm. (laughs) and you want to know even as you're writing things down even as you're visualizing your ideal birth plan that you also need to be expecting the unexpected things that you don't want to do or focus too much on the small details because obviously (laughs) so much is out of your control um You don't want to allow the idea of your ideal vision to dominate everything that you do. You want to have that vision so that you know what the perfect birth looks like and so that the support team around you also knows what that looks like to you. 
but you don't want to let it dominate everything that happens. Uh, definitely don't overplan your birth plan, which is hard to do for some people, but, uh, over planning can get in the way just as much as anything else. And then you don't want to leave the important things to chance, which we'll get into later when we talk about, like, if you want to have a natural birth and you end up going in for an emergency cesarean, make sure you have that plan. Make sure you know what you want as far as cesarean protocols are, just so that you don't get into a situation that you already maybe didn't want to be in and then suddenly have feel completely powerless and feel like you don't know what choices to make, which is where the coming in the, the, um, making two separate birth plans comes into play. So, okay, let's break it down. <laughs> <laughs> let's break it down. I find that breaking the birth plan down into categories is best because this can also help you decide what you want to make more of a plan for and what you maybe want to just sort of leave to, you know, natural progression. But breaking it down into categories, you want to start with your laboring plan, which is basically how you get yourself from beginning of labor to getting the baby out. Then you want to have a delivery plan, which is a little bit more important. Um, that's obviously how the, like, the physical process of getting the baby out of your body. You do want to have an emergency protocol plan. You want to have a post-delivery plan for you. And then a baby treatment plan as well. And that's just taking into consideration how the medical team is handling all of the post-delivery care specifically for the baby. Because there are a lot of variables there as well. So those are the categories that you want to take into consideration and think about how much you do or don't want to plan within those categories. And then, you know, you just go from there. So laboring plan. <laughs> Let's start with laboring plan. Pain management is the biggest, I think, the biggest topic when it comes to the laboring plan mm -hmm. because that's <laughs> really the biggest focus. Obviously, yeah. getting the baby to move down, getting the baby to work its way toward the birth canal, getting, allowing, aiding in progressing the situation. But the biggest thing that you're going to be dealing with is pain management. And you yeah, have so many Yeah, and I so feel like this options. is also a hot topic because people have strong opinions one way or the other, yeah. at least in terms of using an epidural, which is sort of like the most obvious or most well-known pain management tool with laboring. And I do feel like people are either like, give me that epidural as soon <laughs> as possible, or I really don't want it. I want this to be a natural experience. And so let's try to avoid it. But then I'm sure there was a lot of people who end up in the situation where that was their plan and can't bear the pain and do start asking for pain management tools. Yeah, it's definitely, this is one of those situations where you don't know what it's like until you're in the moment. I mean, I, I remember, I vividly remember having that moment when, when I was delivering Harper, where there was like this very heightened awareness that the pain that I was experiencing was absolutely the worst pain that I had ever felt in my life. <laughs> and it was, and, you know, we moved through it fairly quickly. But if I had been, I mean, I only pushed for about 20 minutes with her. If I had been pushing for two to three hours, I'm, I'm fairly confident that I probably would have wanted some different pain management options. Um, so, you know, you gotta, you gotta 
feel it out and see what happens in the moment mm-hmm. and and be flexible with yourself too mm-hmm. i mean I went into that first birth deciding that I was going to do everything natural and I was going to have no interventions. And luckily for me, it worked out that way. But I I can say with confidence that if I had been in a situation where I had needed some kind of pain intervention or something, I probably it's possible that I would have been too stubborn to ask for it in time. And then, you know, and then I would have been screwing myself so right so for um, someone like you who decides or at least with that with that um labor with harper deciding not to have pain management um tools like an epidural for example what were some of the the tactics that you used to cope with the pain while you were laboring um for me the water immersion was amazing being in the tub takes so much of the pressure of contractions off of your body um because the you know the water is helping to hold the body weight so being able to have contractions in a tub was huge counter pressure for me was huge having hands pressing on my lower back having hands Mm. squeezing on my outer hips um what else lots of movement movement was also huge for me being able to like be up and moving around and swaying and rocking and just like keeping my body moving through those super painful contractions was very, very helpful. Um, and that's something that you want to definitely take into consideration if you're having a hospital birth is are they going to allow you to labor outside of the bed? Most hospitals do now. Most hospitals let you get up and walk around and sort of, you know, get your body moving as it needs to. But some hospitals still <laughs> just like confine you to a bed and make you stay there, which is not ideal. Um, so that's a huge that's a huge part of knowing what you're where you're delivering, knowing what they allow and making sure that you are vocal about requesting things like that just to be able to manage the pain. Unless you are, if you're doing any kind of block, an epidural or a spinal block or a pudendal block, which is that one's where they just they give you an injection to just block the pudendal nerve, which is basically numbs just the vaginal area, like between the I guess from the rectum to the vagina so it's it's you still feel the sensation of contractions but you're not feeling um the (laughs) the extreme pressure of pushing the baby out so if you have any of those blocks you're gonna stay in bed because you don't necessarily have the ability to move and like feel what your body's doing um but aside from that being up and being moving for me was the biggest thing Mm. There, some people love contrast therapy, like going back and forth between heat packs and ice packs. I hated the extreme feeling, hated it. But I also love contrast therapy outside of labor. So that was another thing where I had no idea how it was going to affect me until I was in the moment. One of the things that has stuck out so clearly to me was, I think actually on one of our podcast episodes, you were talking about a story from when you were a practicing doula and how one of your clients was really into one specific scent. I forget yep. what it was. It's and decided chamomile. that chamomile, right. So like part of the whole birth plan was that there were going to be chamomile candles going in the room and the scent was going to be very calming and perfect. And then your client went into labor and hated the smell of chamomile yeah. all of a sudden. Yeah. And I just thought that was so interesting how you really, you can prepare as much as you want to, but 
from a hormonal perspective, you just don't even know what your body, how it's going to react to anything while this is happening. It's so true. And that's that's why making a plan is important, but also being flexible in your plan is also right. important. Exactly. She had everything. She had the candles. She had tea going. She had little, um, little uh, what do you call them, sachets that she put in the in the bath water so that like the water was chamomile like everything was chamomile (laughs) yeah and then of course she was I mean she was I remember (laughs) watching her face change and she got so angry and I was like what's happening she was like I hate this smell and it was she it was like she went from zero to 60 so fast and she just like we had to drain the tub we had to get rid of the candles we had to then like bring in different sense to make that smell go away we had to it was it was like this whole we basically had to turn the room to make her feel comfortable again oh my god yeah so yeah I mean I think that's such a good example of you can prepare as much as you want to but you really are gonna have to be flexible one thing that I do love the idea of is having a playlist or just some sort of like music prepared in mind because I feel like music really for most people can set a tone in such a nice way when you have that ambiance of music in the background I just think that that can be something that can be so incredibly soothing at least for me personally I love being the idea of having a playlist prepared and ready to go but I wonder if at all hospitals I mean I guess you can always bring your own little portable speaker or something yeah. just to make sure that the volume is loud enough especially if you know things get loud in there right because <laughs> they will yeah. <laughs> um yeah playlists are great I love a playlist but keep in mind too that you will want to have a few different playlist options on hand you want to have you know your calming relaxing like whatever gets you into zen mode you definitely want to have that especially for the earlier laboring phase because the more you can encourage melatonin in your body the more you can encourage oxytocin in your body the more you're going to help move your labor along so you do actually in those beginning phases want to keep you know if they'll let you keep the lights down keep everything calm do whatever works breath to, work yeah, yeah breath work is huge do whatever works to calm you down but then once you get to the pushing phase you're yeah, probably going to be really offended. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're going to be really offended by like that meditative playlist. You're going to want like some serious, energetic, upbeat, like something that you enjoy, maybe something you enjoy dancing to, like something that's going to get your energy up and get you excited and get you as happy as you can be <laughs> to go through like the basically the sprinting phase of labor. Yeah. And then you have acupuncture and acupressure if you have that option some doulas specialize in that I've never done it um but some people swear by it people I know many people who swear by hypnobirthing and and I've watched people use hypnobirthing techniques through their entire labor and delivery and it has worked wonders for them so there's so many different options as far as pain management is concerned you also have I know it's not as common in the states in hospitals but nitrous oxide is becoming fairly common here in birthing centers and that's basically like laughing gas right Mm -hmm. so just to get you through your contractions so definitely find out what your pain management options are where you're delivering and then in your plan give yourself a few different varieties of things to choose from and then the other thing for for your laboring options is locations like we said 
are can you get out of the bed i hope the answer is yes yeah. um, unless you've what had kind of options do they have in the room like is there going to be a ball is there you know all kinds of things that you could be using to prop yourself right are they going to let you walk down the hall are they going to let you you know move as freely as you need to to get that baby to encourage that baby to drop down and then positions as well do they let you are is there flexibility in the kind of positions that you can use even if you're on the bed if you if you are required by hospital regulation to labor on the bed do they allow you to try to labor in different positions or do they make you lie on your back and put your feet up and do sort of like the traditional the thing that we always see in movies which is very counterintuitive physiologically to getting a baby out of your pelvis Mm. so making sure that you know where you have the flexibility to labor and I definitely don't recommend planning out positions like (laughs) if I'm in pain I will get on all fours if I'm in pain I will try side lying and have my partner hold my leg like those are things that you truly are going to feel out in the moment you're going to get into one position and it's going to feel terrible and you're going to feel in your body where you need to shift so just making sure that you have the flexibility to change positions definitely not advocating for like planning a position library because <laughs> that that is another thing that you just don't know until it's happening a really big one for birth plans and hospitals is food and drink allowances will they let you drink water will they let you have snacks in while you're laboring while you're in that early phase of labor some hospitals still don't because they're why afraid- would you be restricted on the water side i wish i knew <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I can tell you with my, with Nick's sister-in-law, it took me a minute to figure out, uh, with Nick's sister-in-law, they, cause I think she pushed for three or four hours. They got to the point where they stopped giving her water because I don't know if they were afraid that she was going to pee. I don't know what it was, but also like bodily fluids are just a part of labor. So (laughs) it's just something that you have to be okay with. But they wouldn't let her have ice chips. They wouldn't let her have anything. And so she's like pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing. And obviously the amount of exertion that your body goes through in a pushing phase, it's like, it's like imagine sprinting and then not being able to have water when your mouth is dry and your throat is dry. No, it sounds horrible. Yeah, it's so crazy. So uh, making sure that you ask those questions ahead of time. Also, if you're in your, if you get to the hospital early, and you're in those early stages of labor for a long time, you need food. You need sustenance to keep your body going. And some hospitals will not allow you to eat once you have checked in. So making sure that you know what your hospital does and doesn't allow as far as food and drink is really important as well. Mm-hmm. Birthing centers usually encourage you to bring food. Um, we have like a whole cooler packed <laughs> for when we're already. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, Just like lots of snacks that you can have already packed in advance. Yep. Yep. Because you have to, I mean, how else do you keep your energy up? If you're, if you are lucky enough to have a two hour labor and delivery, then amazing. And I'm sure you probably will get through it with no food. But aside from that, like you still have a functioning body that's exerting a ton of energy. Right. So naturally you need to keep your resources replenished so that's a big one that I always encourage people to ask about is what the food and drink policy is and if it's a strict policy how much wiggle room is there and if you're like my husband who was sneaking me water after my surgery 
after my appendectomy because they <laughs> wouldn't let me <laughs> drink water. You know, maybe not that I'm encouraging you to go against hospital regulations, but I mean, water's important. Hydration's important. If you get dehydrated in the middle of labor, you're going to probably end up having some kind of emergency intervention if it goes on for too long. So, right. Yeah. So that's a huge one. Dilation testing is one that you have the option to opt out of. A lot of hospitals will test your dilation, check you for dilation on a pretty regimented schedule. And that's where things can start to get tricky. If you're not dilating according to hospital standards, then they may start trying to push you towards other interventions. Um, Pitocin is can work wonders if you need it, but it is a nightmare. I have never had it. I have watched many laboring people get Pitocin, and I have watched the entire labor change because it's so, so intense on the body. And more often than not, if you're if you get Pitocin and you don't move fast enough to that pushing phase, you're going to ask for an epidural because the intensity of the contractions that are induced by the Pitocin are so, so high. Right, because so, that's what Pitocin's purpose is, right, is to speed up the contractions. Yeah, it's to move the labor mm-hmm. along. And it's a very high dose. Pitocin is basically a synthetic form of oxytocin. It's a very high dose. So you get that Pitocin in your body, and then you it, it is, is another situation where you're going from zero to 60, and you're just like pushing that labor along as fast as you can. And it can go from, you can go from being accustomed to the level of laboring that you've been at to suddenly... Like being on a in a whole new world with no buildup, so your body has had no time to prepare. So, you do have the option to request that they don't check your dilation on a regular basis. You can also request that they don't check your dilation unless they are concerned about um, an emergency situation. Not all hospitals will. Uh, agree to that but it's just something to keep in mind if you want to be laboring on your own terms if you want to be having a natural delivery in a hospital that's definitely a place where the less you're checked the less intervention likely will come into play mm-hmm. same with electric fetal monitoring so you see in hospitals you see those laboring women with the monitors strapped to their belly so that they're constantly monitoring the baby's heartbeat that is That is becoming more standard in hospitals, but that's another situation where depending on the hospital and depending on their protocols, it can result in unnecessary interventions. That's not to say that you shouldn't. I think in the birthing center, it's more standard to check the baby's heart tones like every 20 to 30 minutes, but having that consistent monitoring on can actually... uh, has the potential to get in the way because the baby's heart rate is going to change a lot too. The baby, the baby's heart rate changes when it moves. Every time you feel a kick, your baby's heart rate is changing. So if you think about the entire process that your baby is going through to get from your uterus out of your pelvis, there's a lot of movement. There's a lot of changing positions. There's a lot of changing in blood pressure. So it's normal for the baby's heart rate to not be consistent. Unfortunately, that can work against you sometimes depending if you have that constant monitoring so that's just also something to keep in mind some people feel a lot more safe being able to have that that fetal monitoring system strapped to them at all times because then they Mm. always know how the baby's doing and that's if that's where you feel safest do it 
but just you know there there are pros and cons to both and then the last i guess bullet point for for this category is (laughs) induction options which may be elected uh or may be presented to you with or without options so the most common induction option like we talked about is pitocin that is the most uh standard in the hospital because it's super efficient usually it gets the job done if you have if you have been given pitocin and you're still not progressing in a way that um is getting you to the end result then generally the next step is emergency removal but pitocin is like the the thing that gets the job done the most so it's the most common there is a cytotech which is a pill that they actually insert vaginally that softens or is meant to soften your cervix there's some controversy around that uh it's actually the the pharmaceutical company that that makes it has deemed it not safe (laughs) to be used for labor induction interesting yeah um it's not i don't think it's as common in the states i think uh there was actually one obgyn in singapore that got fired for using it because he in singapore if you deliver on the weekends you get time and a half so he was he was having appointments with his clients or with his women with his laboring parents on friday and he would he would insert the cytotech without telling them and then they would go into labor on the weekends so um yeah he got fired um but anyway it's i think it's more common in other places i don't think it's as common in the states but it is still something to just do your research on and make sure that you know the pros and cons um so that if you have that option presented to you that you know what it's going to do. And then some of the more gentle, usually earlier on interventions are the amniotomy, which is manually rupturing the amniotic sac, like manually making your water break because that will encourage labor. And then a membrane sweep, which is where you just go in and with, or well, you don't, but you are, your midwife or your doctor goes in and just does a finger sweep to try to separate the amniotic tissue from the inside of the cervix so and you can do a membrane sweep more than once um, that's the most gentle but it's also the least common in the hospital so mm. as far as induction options those are the most common just make sure that you at least research them and understand them so that if you are presented with a situation where induction is being talked about you know what your options are this was a great list i like that good all right Delivery plan. Next part. Delivery plan. (laughs) So. Where do we even start? I know. How do you. I guess really with a delivery plan. There's two main options, obviously. Right. (laughs) Right. There's a vaginal delivery and there's a cesarean, which is a C-section. Yeah. And I, the, the interesting thing for me is that I. How do I say this? Okay. I think it's interesting that there are. A group of people who choose specifically to have a C-section. It's they know that they want that for their delivery plan. It's definitively what they want. I've said this before on the podcast. It's something that's actually pretty popular in Miami. And I believe that's because 
in Latin America, C-sections are pretty popular and there is a big Latin American population here. The people in general, it feels like, who have in mind a vaginal delivery, I feel like are typically very set on wanting to have a vaginal delivery and having, if there is an emergency C-section that has to be done, it's really a last mile, last case scenario that has to happen. Yep. Yeah. That's, and I fall into that category. Uh, for many reasons, I, I believe personally for myself that vaginal delivery is what is best for me and what is best for my baby. Uh, I also know that the recovery from a C-section, like the physical recovery from a, from a fitness professional standpoint, the recovery from a C-section is a nightmare. So <laughs> I don't want to put my body through that if I don't have it's to. It's actual surgery. Yeah. And it is a serious surgery. But you also have to, I mean, I have a C-section plan. We That's the birth plan I think that we've talked about more than more than my ideal birth plan is what happens if we are in an emergency situation where we transfer to a hospital and I have a C-section. Because that's the unpredictable variable that I do not want to go in unprepared for. But some people elect for C-sections, you know, based on whatever their personal reasons are. And that's also fine because... As long as you're getting the baby out and everyone's healthy, that's what's most important. And if you know what your body is going through in having a C-section, and if you know, if you have an understanding of that recovery and you deem that that's what's best for you, then that is an opportunity to empower yourself to have the labor that you want to have, have the delivery that you want to have. And the nice thing about C-sections nowadays also is that there are two essentially two different kinds now i'm using air quotes so you can't see me um it's still a c-section they're still going to cut you open they're still going to pull the baby out but what's becoming more popular these days is something called a gentle c-section and if you are doing an elected c-section you definitely have this option if you are in an emergency removal situation you may or may not have the option to do a gentle c-section so that's just something to keep in mind and what's a gentle c-section so it is still a c-section but it prioritizes bonding between birthing parent and baby so you can do a clear drape so that you can actually see the baby Uh coming out you can't actually see like you're not watching your (laughs) your insides being pulled out of you you can't actually see you can see once the baby comes out you can see once the baby comes out they move the ekg monitors to your back and to your ribs so that as soon as the baby comes out you can have that baby placed on your chest you can have the skin to skin time Uh, They do more of a slow removal, so they'll let the baby's head come out first, and then they'll slowly remove the body, and they'll allow sort of that pressure of the slow removal to help evacuate the fluid from the baby's lungs and the baby's nose, which is more similar to the way a vaginal birth would be. They uh, they don't take the baby away right away. With a standard C-section, they take the baby away right away. They do all the testing. They clean it. They wrap it up they make a nice little baby presentation mm-hmm. for you so you don't you don't get to see the baby right away in a in a traditional c-section so with the gentle c-section you have it's sort of like this hybrid where yes the baby is still being cut out of your stomach but you're still getting to prioritize the the bonding time so you can do delayed testing you can have the baby placed on your chest you can try to nurse right away 
Um, you're not straight. Your arms aren't strapped down to the table. So you have the freedom to move and obviously to hold the baby when it's presented to you. Whereas with a traditional C-section, it's very much a surgery. They strap your arms down. There's an opaque cloth, so you can't see what's going on. You're going to hear the baby. You're going to hear people react to the baby coming out. You're not going to see it. It's going to be taken away. You're going to be just laying there (laughs) waiting for your baby. But if you're in an emergency situation, chances are they're not going to take the time to do the gentle C-section because obviously it's an emergency and you have to get the baby out. So, Mm -hmm. And some people don't you know some people don't prioritize that initial bonding phase in the way that other people do so it may not be important for you to do a gentle c-section and to have the baby have sort of that more natural coming out experience um or prioritizing that skin to skin time more and more hospitals are recognizing now the importance of that initial skin to skin time that initial bonding time but if that's not a priority to you, you know, that's that's your prerogative, too. So mm-hmm. and then the other things that come with the the gentle C-section are like delayed cord cutting or waiting for the cord to stop pulsing in order to cut it. So a little bit more reflective of what a natural delivery would be like. Even if you do have a traditional C-section, you still have the option to request things like immediate skin to skin. If you're in an emergency situation, if they're doing triage on you, you can request that that skin-to-skin be with your partner instead. But you do have the option to request those things. You can request that the baby still not be checked or tested until after skin-to-skin time. So you, those are things to think about as well, as if that's something important to you. Even if you are in an emergency situation, what can you, where do you have flexibility to continue to prioritize the things that are important to you? You can still request cord clamping options. It may or may not, you know, it may or may not happen, but there's still things that you want to think about how important they are to you and then request them. And that's all you can do. If you are having a cesarean and it's like, if I were to go in for an emergency cesarean and I knew that there were the that there was a potential for me to be having another baby in the future, and I knew that I wanted to at least attempt a VBAC, a vaginal birth after cesarean. I would request to have a double stitch for my uterine wall instead of a single stitch because that's going to support healing in the uterus to where I will likely be more supported muscle wise. Um, in pushing a baby out after having that surgery. So those are things to And VBACs to think about are too. fairly uncommon, right? There's many doctors who will not perform a VBAC. It depends. That's another regional-based okay. thing. It really depends on where you are. It depends on the hospital that you're at. Mm-hmm. Some hospitals, like the hospital that I will be going to if we have to have an emergency transfer, they're very, very supportive of VBACs. But one of the highest-functioning children's hospitals here is not. So it really depends. That's a that's a question for like when you're touring your hospital or when you're interviewing your OB and, you know, uh, if you've had a cesarean, making sure that you're having those conversations right out of the gate. Because if a VBAC, usually people who want VBACs feel very strongly about having them. So it's, that's just going to be something that you have to investigate. Mm-mm. And then... 
I guess the the what's done with the placenta that applies to cesarean or to vaginal delivery. Same, but, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so we can get into that in a second. So with vaginal delivery, it's kind of what we talked about before: making sure that you have the freedom to labor, even if you're in the active pushing phase. Making sure that you have the freedom to change positions. Maybe you're not in the bed. If you want to be on that birthing stool that's just going to like open up your hips and get that baby out. If you want to be in the shower, if you want to be leaning over a ball, if you want to be wherever you want to be, making sure that you have at least, you don't have to state it in your birth plan, but you can depending on where you're delivering, making sure that you have at least vocalized that you want to be able to do something other than just lay in the bed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then with vaginal, this one I feel is very important the the conversation of episiotomy versus naturally tearing so and is that a choice you have the choice of basically having the episiotomy first before potentially tearing naturally so most things are a choice most things mm-hmm. but the hospitals have standards and procedures that are going to push you in the direction that is easiest slash most efficient for them so if you have, if you're, if the baby's starting to crown and the baby's head is gigantic or, you know, they have their, their fist up next to their face or a situation where you need more space, you need yeah. more space. Yeah. You generally, it's, it's becoming less common, but it's still fairly common. Generally, they're just going to say, okay, we're going to perform an episiotomy to make more room. Mm-hmm. Uh, Definitely do the research for yourself. I don't want to tell you, you know, what to do and what not to do. But there are some big cons to having episiotomies. And there are also some cons to to tearing naturally. In my opinion, one outweighs the other, but that's just my opinion. With natural tearing, you have the option to, for some kind of interventions that help to minimize the tearing, like warm compresses can really help. I mean, literally just a warm washcloth on your perineum while you're pushing. That counter pressure can help with tearing as well. Episiotomy recovery can be complicated. That's definitely one category where I would encourage that laboring person to go do some research and like figure out what you're most aligned with. And maybe it's an episiotomy. And if so, great. I will fight tooth and nail to never get an episiotomy, but that's just for me. Being aware, at least knowing, at least understanding emergency extractions like vacuum and forceps, knowing the potential side effects of those is important as well um, so that you can, you know, advocate for you, advocate for your baby. They're becoming far and far less common Forceps used to be super common, which is crazy. Mm, Uh, That is really crazy. Yeah. (laughs) But also that was a very different time in, you know, the laboring world. So if you are presented with a situation where they say we have to do an emergency extraction, it's also possible that you might be too far along for for it to be moved to a c-section so you may have to be okay with one of the emergency extraction options so just know which one is preferable to you so that you can put in your birth plan if we are in an emergency extraction situation please use vacuum do not use forceps or vice versa 
So, and then the other thing with delivery is placenta. If you, your placenta is yours, it is a part of your body. You have the right to request it to take it home. If, if that's something that's important to you, if you want to encapsulate or if you want to, you know, people do all kinds of things with placentas now, like make smoothies right. and make lasagna. Yes. If that's that's, you're, make lasagna? I uh, thought just... Yeah. making capsules that you swallow <laughs> people <laughs> yeah people do all kinds of different things with their placenta I oh i thought the option was to put it into capsules which yeah. would be swallowable yes that is the most in my opinion the most stomachable option but people uh-huh. do all kinds of different things with their placenta what's the purpose of the lasagna placenta mixture i guess just <laughs> eating it I have no idea. I, okay. I, you know, personal preference, I guess. <laughs> maybe. I mean, maybe for some people, they're like the what's appealing to them. Part of it is the animalistic experience of actually eating it. And so taking it in a capsule form doesn't feel fully authentic to that. Sure. I don't know. I'm just spitballing here. Yeah. I mean, that's possible. I don't. That's not how my brain works. So I'm not sure. But I know that some people are super into like eating it, like cutting it up and chewing it. And that is... Are you making yours into capsules? Is that yes. part of the plan? <laughs> yeah. 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 So your placenta is a part of your body. You do have the option to request it to take it home. If that's something that you want to do to have to give it to someone who's going to encapsulate it for you or to do whatever it is that you're going to do with it. Some people have mm-hmm. placental burial ceremonies. There, there are many different things that people can do with their placentas. You do have the option to take it home, which is something important to keep in mind because some hospitals will fight you on it, but it is yours. Mm. Just make sure you bring a cooler (laughs) so that you have a way to bring it home. Yeah. And the benefits, I mean, it's obviously a personal choice, but the benefits do sound pretty amazing. The benefits are great. I can tell you that for like mood and hormone regulation after all of those hormones are immediately evacuated from your body it's i found it to be very very helpful to encapsulate my placenta with Mm. my Mm. first and i'm doing it again yeah uh okay emergency protocol plan make sure you think about it make sure you talk about it make sure you don't have to write it out you don't have to write it up if you if that's not something that's appealing to you if that's something that's going to create stress or anxiety but make sure that you've at least discussed it so that again so that you're not blindsided You want to plan for typical hospital emergency protocol, and then you want to essentially plan for worst case scenario, or at least have those conversations. And that's kind of all I want to touch on for emergency protocol. I don't think it's something that needs too much attention or too much energy, but I do want to stress the importance of at least going there in your mind. Mm -hmm. Okay, post-delivery plan. Suction versus massage is a huge one. So when that baby comes out, there's fluid in the lungs, there's fluid in the in the nasal cavities. It used to be standard protocol to just suction babies everything. Like just suck that fluid out. It's a little more standard now to do gentle massage. The more movement, uh the more gentle pressure on the baby, the more that's gonna encourage the fluid out. Crying also gets the fluid out. So the suction is not necessarily necessary, but it is still standard protocol in some hospitals. So if you Mm -hmm. feel like you want your baby to have the more gentle option or you just don't want your baby to be bombarded with machines right away. Right. Because this is something that's happening basically immediately after delivery. Yeah, exactly. 
And that's going to depend, too, on whether or not you request those delayed procedures and request skin-to-skin time immediately or if, if they're just taking the baby right away and going through all the procedures. Make sure you know what those procedures are and what's going to be happening to your baby. Cord clamping and cutting is another big thing that, uh, especially in the last couple of decades, has become a hot topic. Doing the delayed clamping so that while the cord is still pulsing, your baby is still getting all those super important nutrients and benefits of still being connected to the cord. You can do delayed clamping. You can do delayed cutting. You can wait until the cord stops pulsing altogether. You can wait until there's no more blood in the umbilical cord before you clamp and cut. You have many, many options, so doing your research there and figuring out what you think is best for you and your family is definitely uh, definitely advised, because in most hospitals, if you don't put it in your birth plan, they're likely just going to get that baby out, clamp, cut the cord, and move on. Skin-to-skin time, bonding, time to latch, that is another thing that you may or may not have to request, depending on the, the hospital that you're at, depending on their procedures. So another place where just doing your research and knowing what's important to you in those moments, immediately following and making sure that you at least take into consideration how important it is to you. And then the delayed testing comes with that as well. The The immediate testing that they do is fairly simple. They'll do the APGAR testing is at one in five minutes after delivery regardless, but that's just I mean that's just doctors having eyes on your baby so that's a test that doesn't really matter when they do it because they're not intervening at all Um, but aside from that just making sure that if you want those afterbirth procedures to be delayed so that you can prioritize your bonding time just making sure that you're pretty you're vocal about that as well and then the last thing that we have (laughs) we're almost there (laughs) the last thing that we have is the baby treatment plan and that's a big one because there's a lot that happens in hospital protocol. Immediately I, and I feel like this is one of the parts of this whole plan that maybe gets overlooked by a lot of people because they're so focused on the actual laboring and delivering plan that the baby treatment plan, unless prompted by your care team, wouldn't be top of mind. I mean, yeah. at least for me personally, I feel like I'm so focused on getting through the labor and the delivery that the the thought of the next step, which is actually the baby, which is what it's all about, <laughs> is kind of taking a backseat. Yeah, I I agree with that entirely. I think that happens more often than not. And and this is this is a piece of the birth plan that I encourage parents to think about almost more than anything else, because this is the baby's first experience in the world, right? So determining how that goes for the baby and it also will determine how that goes for you as well making sure that you understand exactly why every single thing that's being done to your baby is being done because you are their parent and you are their biggest advocate and there are some procedures and protocols that are a little bit outdated and there are some that are not necessary but that are done just from a hospital liability perspective And that's just the hospital covering their bases, but you have the right to do the same, right? You have the right to make sure that you're covering your bases and your baby's bases and doing and acting in in that best interest as opposed to acting in the hospital's best interest. The like the measuring and getting length and weight and the APGAR, all of that is standard. All of that are things that you should be doing, but you can request to have them be delayed. 
the washing of the baby is something that there lately has been a decent amount of controversy on because they're coming out, they come out with the vernix, which is like the, I hate this comparison, but people always compare it to cheese, but like the white sort of, um, Uh sticky, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Uh And, and that vernix has been keeping their skin hydrated while they've been living in fluid. So removing it is something that hospitals do so that you have a, a shiny, pretty baby. But removing it with soap can actually be super, super dehydrating to the baby's skin. So you can request to just have the baby wiped down with a washcloth. You can request to do it yourself if you want that to be part of your your initial bonding moments with the baby. You can request to just have it delayed and you can do it whenever you're ready to do it. Um, and that's just something that you have to decide how important that is to you. If you... So the RH blood test, if you're negative and your partner is positive, there's a chance that there could be some. Have you done your your RH testing yet? No. Okay. So there's a chance that there could be complications if your blood type is negative and your partner's blood type is positive. And so and those those complications uh you end up suffering those complications, not the baby, which is good. But you do have the option if you are one is negative and one is positive you do have the option to have them test the uh umbilical cord to s- test the baby's blood type to determine whether or not you need the rogam it's not you don't have to take it but again that's one of those things where you have to do a cost benefit analysis and basically decide like what's what's worth in the moment, in the time, what's worth doing the additional testing? Are you going to feel safer if you just get the rogam? It's entirely up to you. But you do have the option. Um, same with the hep B shot. If you, some states require it. It's mandatory in some states. But you can defer it to your baby's two-month appointment with their pediatrician. If you're confident that your baby is not going to be exposed to hepatitis B in the first two months of life, Meaning if you're confident that you don't have hepatitis B and your family members don't have hepatitis B and you're not going to be like traveling abroad or going somewhere where you're really risking high exposure, you don't have to, you don't have to have that vaccine done immediately after birth. And how quickly after birth would these shots take place? Like really immediately or do they have time to talk to you about what your preferred options are and then within a few hours, you can make a decision. That really depends on the hospital. For some, it's just standard protocol. Baby comes out, clean it up, wipe it off, do the APGAR, do the vaccinations, do the eye drops, do the everything, and, and then give the baby to you. That's not as standard as it used to be, but it's still in practice in some parts of the country more than others. So sometimes they'll have a conversation with you. Sometimes they won't, um, which is why I definitely want to reiterate as much as possible this one like the baby the post-delivery baby care is the one thing that you should be thinking about talking about more than anything else because some hospitals just go through the motions and Mm -hmm. suddenly you're you know it's two hours later and all these all these things have been done without you even really being aware of them Right. And also probably not having the time to think about all the things that are happening because you're dealing with your own shit that's happening in your body and yeah. having a new baby and yeah. all of that stuff. <laughs> that's exactly right. A lot going on. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Those, which is why you want to think about it ahead of time, because in the moment, you don't want to be having those conversations. In the moment, your head is going to be in a million different places, and that's not going to be your priority. 
The vitamin K shot is another thing that you have the option to opt out of. Um, it's usually given right after birth. It's to help with blood clotting. It became hospital protocol when the use of forceps was very, very popular. So that's not necessarily the standard anymore. We're not using forceps with every vaginal delivery. But blood clotting is also something that's important. So that's another that's another area where I just really encourage you to do your research and, and figure out what you think is most important for baby. You can also do, you can defer the vaccination and do an oral, like a sublingual vitamin K uh, option with your pediatrician instead. Some hospitals may offer it, but it's a little more standard to go to your pediatrician after you've left the hospital and ask for the oral vitamin K. So knowing what you want to do there is also important. Uh, PKU testing, that's the heel prick. The, the whole point is, so it's a genetic disorder. I'm going to botch it, but I'm going to try it. Phen, <laughs> phenylketonuria. <laughs> we, you got I, it. Woo. High five. We just always call it PKU. Um, the, the heel prick is to test for the the to see if the presence is there but you won't know until the baby has been if the baby is being breastfed you won't know until the baby has received milk so I, I guess it's breastfed or formula fed so if they're doing the heel prick within the first 24 hours before that baby has received any colostrum or any um, formula or any kind of anything those tests are going to be or those results are going to be inconclusive because the baby's body has not absorbed any milk yet so making sure that you understand when the hospital does it hopefully if you're in a hospital they're doing it at the right time they're doing it after giving the baby the opportunity to absorb but um you know that's another one that just like some regulations are weird and they'll just do it right away and then it's pointless uh I definitely recommend breastfeeding if you are choosing to breastfeed I definitely recommend breastfeeding or having the baby latch while they're doing the heel prick it's a lot less traumatizing for everyone hmm. interesting yeah antibiotic eye ointment used to be silver nitrate drops now they've done something synthetic but it is still standard hospital protocol and it's essentially to protect the baby from STDs so when the baby comes through the birth canal travels through the vagina if the mother has gonorrhea or chlamydia, it can cause blindness in the baby. So they just do those eye drops just across the board. It's just standard protocol. If you have been tested in your pregnancy for gonorrhea and chlamydia and you have tested negative, there's no reason for the baby to have those eye drops. So something else where you want to just make sure that you're covering your bases, right? And then... If that's something that you feel strongly about opting out of, make that request. If you are really focused on breastfeeding exclusively, you'll want to make sure that you have that conversation with your care team not to supplement with formula. If, you, if it's important for you to do exclusively breastfeeding, that does mean that you're going to be getting up a lot in the middle of the night, especially in those first few days where that baby's going to be nursing like in the double digits on a daily basis. But that's because their stomachs are super, super tiny, so they can only accommodate for a very small amount at a time. 
Some hospitals still follow the protocol of letting mom sleep through the night and just supplementing with formula until mom wakes up tomorrow. If you have strong feelings about no formula in your baby, that's a request you're definitely going to want to make to make sure that they understand that your priority is breastfeeding only and no formula. And then the last thing that I think is important for people to consider is whether or not you want to have the baby in the room with you the whole time. And if you do, that's also going to be something that you have to advocate for. If you want to make sure that you are prioritizing that bonding time and that you're not sort of letting the nursing team take over, um, that's something that you'll want to just clarify as well. And just say, you know, we, we prefer that the baby not be removed from the room without permission from one of us. And that also depends on the hospital because some hospitals still have nurseries where they just take the baby out of the room and it's just like in the nursery in the beginning of its life. It's far less common now. Most hospitals will keep the baby in the room with you. But if you are delivering in a hospital that has that nursery and you know you want the baby to be with you, that's definitely something that you will want to vocalize and you may have to vocalize more than once. And then the last thing is circumcision, which you know, is another thing that you just have to have a conversation with your partner about. And then you just have to have a conversation with the hospital about, and that's an easy one. I don't feel like there are hospital protocols that try to push you in one direction or the other. If you. Right. And there's a pretty common formula in the States. I feel like. Right. Right. It's usually done. Like it's usually one of the last things that's done before you're discharged. If you're choosing to have a circumcision Mm -hmm. in the hospital, if you're not, if you are, you know, for, for traditional reasons, for family reasons. I assume you guys are would be delaying until after hospital, right? Yeah, we will because we're both Jewish. And the funny thing actually is that, and I've thought about this, we're delivering at a Catholic hospital. So <laughs> I feel like they're going to be like, what do you mean you don't want us to circumcise your, <laughs> yeah. your American son? Because, you know, it's very common here, obviously, but we will be delaying it until day eight for religious reasons. Yeah. Whereas if we have a boy, we're opting not to circumcise. And that's... Oh, that's, interesting. Yeah. And that's something that hospitals are... How European of you. I know. So Euro. <laughs> <laughs> but that's something that hospitals are definitely a lot more hands off with than they used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think just because there are so many variables and like for you, for example, you like that's a huge part of your religious tradition. So I can't imagine a hospital being like, oh, but wait, it's hospital protocol. Like you can't really fight with that. So. Right. Um, so that's just I mean, and that's something that's highly personalized. It's going to be different family to family. And and it's something that I wouldn't say you need to, like, be prepared to go into battle over a circumcision, but at least just make sure that the hospital knows know. so that they don't accidentally circumcise your kid. And then you're like, right. um, hello, oh, that would <laughs> we're be Jewish. Bad. Yeah. Can you imagine? <laughs> so No, I can't. And I think like this is probably one of the only scenarios where that could happen is that we are literally delivering at a small Catholic hospital. So I'm sure it's quite rare for them to not perform a circumcision on baby boys. Yeah. Yeah, I would imagine. So make sure that that is, even if you're not typing up a birth plan for anything else, for your labor, for your delivery, you want to type up that aftercare plan so that you can hand it to people, so that you have it in writing, so that they can see you do not want them to circumcise your baby, so that there's just no, you want to eliminate as much margin for error as possible. Which I think is, you know, kind of the idea behind having a birth plan, which is why I say be flexible, because while you want to eliminate margin for error, you can't with most things. With the after after delivery baby care, that's where you can, that's where you have the most control. But aside from that, you know, you just got to 
gotta roll with the punches <laughs> yeah so that's it we did it we wrapped it <sighs> Wow. A lot, a lot to think about. You know yeah. what? It's so funny. An hour ago when we started talking, I was all like, yeah, I'm not interested in figuring out my birth plan. All of this is going to be so chill. There's so much to think about. Mm-hmm. I really think that this conversation just opened up my eyes to how much I really do need to sit down in the next few months and think about what I want and what I don't want and plan B, C, you know, all the options. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, there, there's just a lot that no one talks about, like all the after baby care stuff that happens, the various vaccinations, the eye drops, the, all that stuff. No one talks about it. It's just something that's done. And so yeah. when I went through my doula training, we learned all about it. And that because we used to have to give birth plans. We didn't have to, but we used to have birth plans to provide to our clients. And that was the always the biggest topic of conversation is people would always get to that part in the birth plan and be like, wait a minute, what is all of this? I just thought the hospital did like standard testing. And it's like, no, there's so much that goes into it. And right. some of it is outdated and some of it is unnecessary and some of it is necessary. But you have to make sure that you understand basically what you're going into. Yep. So if you need any help, just let me know. <laughs> <laughs> I will. I'm going to print print out all of our notes for this episode and bring them to my doctor and be like, let's have a conversation. Yeah, do it. <laughs> have that conversation with your doctor. I think we that's... should make a bit of a guide. Like we should put up on the blog some sort of guide for creating a birth plan and breaking it down by all of the different elements that we just spoke about. I think that could be really helpful for people. And, you know, people who are listening right now, let us know if that's something that you would want. I think that's a great idea. Let's do it. Here for it. All right. Cool. Well, good chat. Yes. And I hope this was super informative for everyone. Yeah, me too. And as always, we're we're both here. So reach out. We're here. Yeah. All right. See you next week. See you next week.